This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. And I, you know, I, I meant to mention this in the last holiday episode, but I didn't. So we did Mark first. I noticed that his name is, was created August 17, 2011. And I thought that was interesting since his date of last contact was December 25th, 1983. I think we're going to find that a lot with the older cases that kind of go in in a, a big lump. Right. Um, uh, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that has like... Because it was entered into NamUs, it doesn't mean he wasn't reported missing earlier. It's just that's when he ended up in NamUs, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I understand that. I, I just was, uh, I realized I should probably include that with these cases. And, this, and that's all I was really bringing up there. You know, I faced a lot of um, sort of conflict in gathering uh, relevant missing people for this particular series. And I'm not sure, uh, I feel like maybe I'm too hard on myself. But when I look at cases, some of them I'm like, well, I'm not really sure we need to mention them for one reason or another. Is there a reason for this guy? No, but I'm saying like just if somebody were to go look at all the people missing on Christmas Day, like we're not going to cover every single one of them. But what do you think about that? I feel like anybody that's missing, it doesn't hurt to put their name out there, right? Well, look, this is how I look at this. One of the purposes of us creating this show and other shows that we thought about creating along the way was to highlight missing persons cases in a way that felt meaningful to us. And this information is out there. Like today's case and yesterday's case, they are on websites where someone, uh, typically at the state level. So when I... So, yeah, you can find them in NamUs and you can find them in Charlie Project. And some of them you don't see in the newspapers. You don't see a lot of flyers. There's not Facebook groups for them. But like today, he's on the California State Police's homepage. He's a person in that list that they say they're still seeking information on. So there's nothing wrong with highlighting that type of missing persons case. I, You know, I do tend to keep out the ones where I look at it and I go, oh, that person was escaping an abusive situation or they started a new life. Um, If I can find them alive, and that happens more and more frequently, I leave them out of the mix. Correct. Yeah, I do the same thing. Yep. 
But we were highlighting missing persons today that we kind of felt like were um, not just today, but in this whole series that are missing around the holidays. And, and I want to say something else about that. I think the holidays, and I think people know this at this point. Um, I remember hearing this with Gremlins. Like, do you remember the movie Gremlins? I do. Mm -hmm. There's this really sad story told by one of the characters in Gremlins about how the holidays can be very trying for certain people. And I think that people can, like, this is the loneliest time of the year, as much as it is all the other things that we put into holidays. And, you know, I'm not particularly religious or anything. We have mixed religious upbringings in my household. So there's a couple of different holidays we celebrate this time of the year. I've just always loved the spirit of this time of year. And I feel like, you know, talking about people and, and potentially, you know, on the off chance, the statistical anomaly happens that someone is listening to this and they have information about it, then a case being closed because I've said something is a good deal. And that's why I wanted to do that. Well, sure. Yeah, no, I agree with that 100%. So today's case, he has um, he actually has a mention in the LA Times. And then he has a mention, um, the, the California State Police. And the California, California Attorney General's Office still keeps him active on one of their lists. He's a foul play, a foul play case, which means that somewhere along the line, something has happened with his case that someone believes that foul play might be associated with what happened to him. And it just happens that I have family uh, that came from um, his home state and, and kind of the general area where he came from. Uh, it's an old missing persons case that he came up with, but I wanted to, uh, to go ahead and, and include him as part of today's episode. This is David Leo Graham. Now, he has been missing since December 25th, 1972. He does have a NamUs and a Charlie Project and all those things. Um, he's considered to be endangered missing. And at the time he went missing, he was 25 years old. This Christmas, he would actually be 76 years old. His birthday was September 1st, 1947. That's a long time ago. Um, it is, yep. He was described as 5 feet 5, 135 pounds. And he has one of those rare descriptions of the clothing. Whether or not he was wearing this when he went missing, I don't know. It's just linked in here it says that he was wearing a sport shirt which they a sport shirt for those who aren't familiar with the 70s description of that is like a little polo shirt uh, and a pair of tan levi's pants uh, he's a caucasian male he was 5'5 135 pounds he had brown hair and green eyes here here's the description from the charlie project talk about him for a minute david graham was last seen in los angeles california on Christmas Day, 1972. He was raised in Mobile County, Alabama, and he had moved to California to attend Los Angeles Valley College. He has never been heard from again. But after Graham's disappearance in 1972, his vehicle was found abandoned at a car lot in Tijuana, Mexico. The owner of the car lot stated that a man that was not Graham sold him the vehicle in January of 1973. His father, David Graham's father, who I believe has since passed away, um, his father believes that he may have been murdered by the person who sold the car. Uh, there were sketches of a possible suspect. Uh, they are posted on the Charlie Project summary. Uh, they're pretty generic sketches of a guy with uh, 
kind of looks like Pedro from Napoleon Dynamite. He's got a big mustache. Uh, he looks like he might be Hispanic or Hispanic American. And he's got a, like a big uh, comb over hairstyle, kind of uh, the base of his neck. And it's like parted to the right hand side. So that person uh, has a couple different descriptions where people said that he might be Caucasian or he might be Hispanic. Um, Charlie Project says Caucasian. LA Times says Hispanic, but he's around 180 pounds. He had brown hair, brown eyes, and a big mustache. Uh, that person's never been identified. David Graham's disappearance remains unsolved, even though foul play is suspected. If you have any information on this, it's an active case to the degree it can be active at the Los Angeles Police Department. The number there is 818-374-1964. Uh, did you do any more digging on David? I did, but I didn't find anything. Um, honestly, it's uh, the case is so old and there's so little information. I imagine that... So something common I see is like... Anytime there's been a transaction, any sort of financial transaction after the person is known to be missing, typically police will suspect foul play. There's not a lot of situations where your car is going to be sold not by you, right? Right. Uh, where there's not something wrong. So uh, this is kind of crazy. He comes up a couple places online if you go looking for him. One of the places he came up was... Uh, if if people do Grateful Doe, it's a Reddit, uh, subreddit, whatever you call it. Wilmington John Doe in there, uh, he was found at the, the Terminal Island. Anyways, the, the person's like photo that Nick Mick did related to Wilmington John Doe looks a lot like the sketches that the LA Times had for this victim. Now, Wilmington John Doe, he was found on February 6, 1973. Uh, Randy Kraft killed him. And uh, Randy Kraft kept a scorecard. And on the scorecard, Wilmington John Doe's name was Wilmington. Um, he was roughly five feet eight, around 140 pounds, but he had the long brown hair that parts this particular way and a mustache. So some people online connect David Graham to Randy Kraft. Uh, so if you go looking for him, I'm just letting people know that that's out there. That's a complex thing to get into when you start looking at a missing persons case and linking it to a serial killer. I've done it kind of tongue in cheek with the Israel Keys case. I try and not do so much speculation that it's crazy. But I did see that some people had said that. And I found a possibility. I found an exact name and uh, birthday match for him in Colorado, by the way. And uh, I, I'm going to dig a little more into that, but it's probably not going to make the show. And I don't, you know, I, I just found a David Leo Graham that has the same birthday who's alive and owns property in Colorado. And so the Wilmington John Doe, David Leo Graham, uh, they are not exclusions from one another. It's possible there's not DNA for, uh, actually, no, that's not true. They both have DNA because they both have exclusions, but uh, they have not been excluded as one another. Gotcha. I see what you're saying. So with David Graham, uh, he's put into NamUs on May 2nd of 2018. And I always, you know, 
I wonder how some of these cases are just backlog cases where they're getting caught up. And then I, I, I do wonder from time to time if people are actively like finding them to be a part of a case. Now, Randy Kraft, who is the scorecard killer or the Southern California strangler, he's actually still alive as of the time we're recording this. Um, he was apprehended what would have been 10 years and change later after Davis disappearance. That's May 14th, 1983. I've always wondered if, if a couple of these guys aren't going to do something different and maybe do, uh, he's one of the freeway killers and he's also the scorecard killer, but I've wondered if one of them's not going to like pull a, like here's all my victims type situation. In his case, there, there are some, references to victims in, in, in how things uh, went down with his investigation. So there's always a possibility they would identify more of them. But I did want to, um, I wanted to highlight David Leo Graham's case today and just talk to you about him for a minute and uh, sort of going with the theme of like, you know, if we could get any of these people home for the holidays, David is certainly on my list. We're not doing a lot of news with these cases that we're doing. I picked a really old one to be the second uh, episode because I do like these historical cases. And uh, I don't know, I feel weird asking you when, I, when I've gotten this deep into one, have you ever heard of the case that we're covering today or is it just like brand new for you? I'd never heard of it. Okay, so this case, it, like I said, it's very old. It does appear... Uh, in a number of places that you can find online. The New York Times actually covered this case to some degree. I saw it in the archives there, and I pulled up a couple of the articles, but they it looks to me like most of the information that's available about this case has been uh, sort of put together at the National Registry of exonerations at the University of Michigan Law School. So that's what I'm pulling from. But I, I will note that, like, he, he does appear elsewhere. Um, this is an interesting story. Beth Cruz put together the summary. And this crime occurred in 1880. Uh, the conviction was also in 1880. The exoneration occurs in 1911. And it's in uh, Middlesex, Massachusetts, uh, the race of the person who is convicted here is Caucasian. He's a male. And at the time of the crime in 1880, he would have been 40 years old. Now, this is a perjury case uh, or a false accusation case. And one of the notes they make is that in 1880, this gentleman had an inadequate legal defense. I always wonder about these cases around the turn of the century or before the turn of the century, how that would have gone down. And we get a little glimpse at that here. So I'm going to cover this and sort of uh, tell the story and then go into like what happened. Joseph Crew, C-R-U-E, reported finding his young wife, Maria Crew shot to death in their farmhouse near Groton, G-R-O-T-O-N, Massachusetts, on January 17th of 1880. Now, Joseph is not considered a suspect because he had a solid alibi that day. The first lead in the case was provided by a doctor there, 
a physician who had been making house calls in the area the day of the murder on January 17th. His name is Dr. Miles Spalding. In front of the crew home, he had seen a sleigh, and the owner of that sleigh was 16-year-old Jenny Carr. When questioned, Jenny Carr said that she had gone over to visit Maria, but had left when a man appeared at the door and said she was away. In the days following this crime, other witnesses recalled seeing a stranger who had a scruffy beard and a mustache in the vicinity. In fact, the man had stopped at a furniture factory that was not very far from Maria and Joseph's home. He had asked for a job and he had given his name. His name was Stearns Kendall Abbott. So Stearns is S-T-E-A-R-N-S, and Kendall, in this case, is K-E-N-D-A-L-L. He was a 40-year-old transient from Cambridgeport who had been in and out of prison for the previous 15 years for different crimes, usually burglary, horse theft, and forgery. From Groton, Abbott had traveled to Boston and then to East Weir, New Hampshire, He was arrested in New Hampshire on January 29th of 1880, and he was returned to Massachusetts where he was tried for Maria's murder. Uh, He ends up being tried in October, so it's October of 1880. The crime takes place in January of 1880, and he's in front of a Middlesex County jury. The principal prosecution witness was Jenny Carr, the 16-year-old girl. She had identified him as the man she had encountered at Maria's home on the day that she was killed. A second witness named Henry Hewins also confirmed having seen Stearns Abbott talking with Mrs. Crew. Both Carr and Hewins had been shown a photo of Abbott prior to the identification. Abbott's court-appointed attorneys were named George Stevens and William H. Burt. They failed to locate any witnesses who could establish that Abbott had boarded a Boston-bound train at Littleton more than an hour before Maria Crew was last seen alive. Stevens and Burt also failed to find witnesses who could have established that Jenny Carr and Joseph Crew had been lovers and that Jenny had borne a child by Joseph. I'm going to let that sit for a minute. So... I think what they're implying in this uh, breakdown is that Joseph killed his wife because he wanted to be having a relationship with Jenny, who <laughs> are, you, are you reading this that like somehow Jenny had a baby with Joseph and they have no evidence of it? Well, that's what it says. But um, I think it's actually implying that uh, Jenny killed the wife. You did. You read it that way. I I tried to read it that way, and I was like, "Because the sixteen, because the well, but she was shot. Um, The independent witness saw Jenny Carr's sled there. Right. A sixteen-year-old could absolutely shoot someone and kill them. Uh, A sixteen-year-old girl, even, especially under the circumstances that are being alleged she was under. Uh, You know, if she had been strangled or something like that, I would say probably not. But Having established that Joseph Crew is not considered a suspect because of his solid alibi, which I, at least not here, they don't go into that, what it was or whatever, but having a, a, an independent 
a doctor see the sled there, I felt like it was saying it was Jenny. Okay. Well, I mean, I'll buy that. And, you know, so the earliest exonerations on record here are in the, like 1819. And, and I think that one's actually on our list to cover. So I'm not going to go deep into that. So exo- like the idea that someone can be falsely convicted by the time this all happens in 1880 is like, it's 60 some years old. I have someone who has come up with a very interesting theory about early crimes and early exonerations and how women are not seen as murderers back then to some degree. I can buy that. To some degree today. <laughs> what do you think of that idea? I, I I buy it. I mean, I feel like I feel like it's wrong, but Yeah, it's it, so <laughs> It's interesting. I pulled up an Office of Justice Programs article from the eighties. The there was, I'm gonna, I'm gonna state the idea here and just get your take on it. I'm not gonna go deep into it, but it's the title of the article. If you wanna, if you wanna look it up, it's in the International Journal of Offender Therapy and Comparative Criminology. It was Volume Thirty One, Issue One which was dated 1987. And this little blurb appears on pages uh, 31 to 40. Uh, It's about 10 pages long, but the annotation for it is controversy of recent years regarding the extent and reasons for the rise in female criminality has focused on whether the increase has stemmed from either the women's liberation movement of the new feminism, emphasizing female awareness and the right to be feminine. Okay. That abstract annotation was written in the 80s. But I think the truth might be closer to we just didn't think women were capable. Do you think Um, that's I think that that might be like an overgeneralization. I will say that for the most part, women aren't – they're not the same as men with regard to – the killing they do. Okay. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Um, and like, you know, it, yeah, this is a, this could get like a pretty deep uh, situation here. Of course I did bring it up, but um, to me, like the facts that are laid out in this very old exoneration case, they clearly are painting the 16 year old girl as the culprit. Now, if you think about that though, we think about what 16-year-olds were like and the time and space we're dealing with, right? But that doesn't negate the fact that this is a 16-year-old girl. The fact of the matter is, it's entirely possible like, that Joseph Crew did not put her up to this. You think maybe like a jealousy type situation? I or think I'm that take- that's exactly what it would have been. And so this was not a situation where you got this like... Uh, what would be the right word? She's not like a maniacal killer. She's like a. It's kind I, of practical for her in a way. I'm going to start I mean, my family over here and I got to get rid of the old one. Well, right. But also like, it's like a naive sort of, which I mean, actually isn't naive because look how it worked out. Right. Right. Um, but it's this young girl saying, this is what I've got to do. That's how I uh, see it. Right. Yeah. Um, and we we don't actually know what occurred, but um, I'm going strictly off of the evidence provided that 
um, her sleigh, which I was wondering, like, what did that look like? Was it like a horse-drawn sleigh? Like, what was happening? That's what I. That's what I thought when I first pictured it. I went looking for 1880s. You you were right with your description of a sled. Um, it could have been horse-drawn, but more than likely, it was just something she used to get through the snow. Right, and so to me, like that was kind of weird. But somebody saw it; they immediately identified who it was. She says, "I was going to see her," and so the other part of that is like, uh, it doesn't seem to have raised any eyebrows that she went to see her, but then she left because, and and the description she gives of the man is very vague, right? It is very vague. Now that's the part that makes me wonder. Because it lines up pretty well as far as what ends up happening, right? They find this guy, they show the picture to them, and of course, you know, they're like, well, yeah, that's who we saw, right? Yeah. And then the other witness who comes up in just a little bit, I believe his last name was, uh, was it Hewlin? So Henry Hewlin, he confirmed having seen who he thought was Abbott, but they were shown, okay, so this gets problematic even for the time that we're in, they're shown a picture of Abbott ahead of actually identifying Abbott. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like they showed him this picture, like, Oh, is this the guy you saw? Right. And of course they're like, wow, they found somebody. Right. I'm saying this more from uh, Jenny's perspective because let's say she is in fact who killed Mrs. Crew. Right. Yeah. Um, and then she says, I was over there, but I left because a, a, a scruffy looking man answered the door. And then they're like, well, was this the scruffy man you saw? And she's like, well, yeah, it was him. Right. Even though like she didn't see anybody, she shot her. Right. Yeah. That doesn't explain um, why Henry Hewins confirms to have seen Abbott uh, talking with Mrs. Crew. Right. Now, there is a, it doesn't elaborate on who he is, except he's just the second witness, right? Okay. Have you seen anything about No, 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 I haven't seen any. So, you know how sometimes sort of in a, a, a neighborly way, like somebody would corroborate something just to help? It, oh yeah. You see what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. Like it's not necessary that like he was like in on this plot or anything, but he could have just like, you know, accidentally lent his secondary testimony. I, I don't know that that's what happened. I'm just saying that if it were to be the case that um, Jenny actually was responsible, that uh, it could have been almost sort of an innocent bystander type account um, of trying to, you know, seek justice for this poor murdered woman and trying to corroborate this young girl's version of events, that type of thing. Well, so here's what's interesting about this case. I just want to point this out re- relevant to what you just said. They covered the heck out of this case. If you go on uh, newspaperarchives.com, the articles start, I think the First one I pulled up is January 23rd, 1880 from the Boston Post. And it says the Groton tragedy. There are more articles in the Boston Globe. It has the murder at Groton. Um, they're very dramatic, by the way. No, actually, there's a January 19th that said ravished and murdered. And that's in the Chicago Daily Tribune. So this was a heavily publicized case. That's the other 18- thing. Was she attacked? 
Because that changes everything, and that's not mentioned here. It So, okay, I have found no actual, like, proof that she was. I did find... I'm gonna I'm gonna read this to you. This is from Murder by Gaslight. Murder by Gaslight is sort of a com, uh, they describe themselves as a compendium of information, resources, and discussion. While I was looking for some of these articles, I realized this person was quoting some of them. So they put out on September second of 2023 just like a, a description of this. I'm gonna read it here. Murder by Gaslight's kind of cool. It's kind of an old timely old timey crime page. Uh, it shows a lot of 19th century stuff. This is what they said here, and it's going to answer your question in just a second. Joseph Crew returned from work to his farm in Groton, near Ayer, Massachusetts, about 8 o'clock on the evening of January 18th, 1880. He was surprised to find all the doors locked and curtains closed. His wife, Maria, could, should have been inside, but there was no response when he knocked on the door. He found the hatchway to the cellar partly open, so he entered that way. He lit a lamp in the kitchen and searched the dark house for his wife. He found her lying dead in the bedroom, shot three times in the face and once in the chest. He then ran to his neighbors who notified the police. The deputy sheriff arrived with others who attempted to trace the murderer. A tramp in the vicinity that afternoon had stopped at the house of the crew's neighbors, the Bradleys, and at several other places asking for water. Under the pretense of buying a farm, he inquired about the crew place. A young man named Henry Hewen called at Cruz at about 2.15 on an errand, and Mrs. Crew told him she had a caller who wanted to buy their farm. Around 3, Miss Jenny Carr called and found the door locked and the curtains closed. A strange man came to the door, and when she inquired about Mrs. Crew, he told her she had gone to town. So, same story we've really had with a little more detail. And then it says... The medical examiner performed an autopsy and found that the pistol shots to her face had been fired so close that they had burned her eyebrows and her skin. So this is point blank range. His examination determined that Maria Crew had been raped. She was, well, they're not changing that. Well, let's keep going for a second. She was still wearing a thimble on her finger, so she must have been sewing when she was attacked. The examiner would later conclude that she was shot first, then her body was dragged to the bedroom where she was raped after death. Suspicion fell on Stern's Kendall Abbott, who had been applying for a job at a nearby woodworking shop. The previous November, Abbott was released from New Hampshire State Prison, where he had been serving time for larceny. He had also served time there for robbery and forgery in Massachusetts and in Connecticut. Abbott had been boarding in Cambridge and hastily departed, leaving behind a hat and a pair of shoes. Detective Jones of Cambridge and Inspector Richardson of Boston arrived in air with photographs of six or seven, quote, noted rogues, which included Stern's Kendall Abbott. The Bradleys both identified Abbott as the man they had seen that afternoon, and Mrs. Bradley recognized the Abbott's hat. Jenny Carr and Henry Hewen picked Abbott out from the photographs. So whether this is a lineup or not depends on what source you read, because... Whether I agree with what Murder by Gaslight is saying here, I have found similar conflicting stuff about this story. And that's partly due to the age, but also maybe with how the information traveled at the time. Like I said, there's like nine articles that covered this in not just Boston, 
but around it in surrounding states all the way over to Chicago, which in my opinion, in 1880, if you make it to the Chicago Tribune, you're kind of national news. Sure. Yeah, I guess you're right. The community was understandably outraged by this murder. The air police commenced a manhunt for Stearns Abbott. The selectmen of air offered a reward of $300 for the arrest and conviction of the guilty party. And they put Detective Hill of the Salem police in charge of the case. They sent Abbott's photograph to police departments throughout New England. How did they do that in 1880? They drove around, I mean, rode around on horses and dropped pictures off. I Sorry, I, I, I like like when I you know so this is seven years before Jack the Ripper. I'm obsessed with like the concept of Jack Jack the Ripper. So this is fascinating to me to see like some of how the police and the courts work at that time. So Air Chief of Police Samuel Reed he commenced his own investigation, but the town gave him no authority in this case. On January 28th, a man named Charles Ford Chamberlain stopped at the farm of B.F. Silly of East Weir, New Hampshire, looking for work. Silly told him he could stay the night, but he was suspicious of the stranger. Abbott's photograph was posted at the local depot, and viewing it convinced Silly that the man who came to his house was a fugitive. He telegraphed Ayer and Chief Reed, accompanied by officers from Manchester, New Hampshire, who arrived in East Weir the following day. That would be January 29th. A large crowd was waiting at the station in air when Reed returned with his prisoner on January the 30th. At the preliminary proceedings in air, Abbott pled not guilty. Afterward, the authorities took him to jail in Lowell. From what this is saying, it looks like Abbott is sort of masquerading as Charles Ford Chamberlain. The fact that Reed was not officially acting for Grodner Air raised the question of who will pay his expenses and who will be liable for the $300 reward that the East Weir farmer expected. So this is Chief Reed has basically gone and picked him up from BF Silly, and now BF Silly wants the reward. <laughs> not everyone was happy with Reed's methods. Some were suspicious of his motives. There were bad feelings toward him extending back to his tenure as deputy under the former high sheriff when Reed was an unpopular and inefficient officer. Adverse opinions of Chief Reed were said to drive a growing sympathy for Stearns Abbott. A newspaper editor and a prominent minister set up a subscription fund to hire ex-district attorney George Stevens for Abbott's defense. So I don't know how you feel about this, but this is kind of wild to me. It seems like uh, the someone was uh, presented as a suspect based on like the person presenting them getting the reward money. That's what it kind of sounds like. Did you see the fo- the photo of this guy? No, I didn't. Okay, so the photo of this guy they have it at, at Murder by Gaslight. If you want to check it out, it's almost comical. Like the guy kind of looks like the Monopoly Man a little bit, but with a little more hair. And when I when I saw it, like it just intrigued me further that like this had all gone on. And I guess in my mind, I'm kind of ignorant of as much as I'm into photography and videography. I don't grasp good timelines on when photography became a big deal in the U S. So that was the other rabbit hole I went down. But this Um, isn't a photograph. What is this? Is this a sketch? That's a drawing. It's a drawing. Absolutely, yes. 
Okay. Well, I, 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 then I stand corrected and I apologize for that. But I did find in my hunt to discover this that, you know, photographs have been around since the 1820s. Oh, I'm sorry. Which one are you talking about? The, the one? Stearns, Stearns K. Abbott at the bottom left. Oh, at the bottom left. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. That is a photograph. I'm sorry. I was talking about the top one is a drawing. Yeah. That's like some kind of engraving from a newspaper. Don't you think the top one? Yeah. It's some sort of drawing, but this one, yeah, this looks like a photograph. Um, or an engraving yeah. maybe. No, it's a, I think it's a photograph. I mean, I don't know what you mean by engraving, but. Oh, the early photographs were, uh, that's going to be like a whole thing. Yeah, um, that's fine. Yeah. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so, uh, according to the descriptions, uh, Murder by Gaslight has it that the courtroom was packed to suffocation when Abbott's trial began in Cambridge in December of 1880. Now, depending on what you where you read this, I have read that it's October. This says that it's December. But it, my point is it's all taking place in the same year this murder occurred. Right. Because mm -hmm. I think we know for sure that, according to all of this, Maria Crew was murdered. We have to remember that when we're like like digging into a case like this, because um, it's really you know it, the home for the holidays does focus on the exonerations, but in this case, you know there's a murder at the heart of it. It's not you know an exoneration for theft or something like that. Uh, the defense offered evidence of another man at the Crew residence that day. They also introduced testimony where they tried to introduce testimony that Mrs. Crew's reputation had been bad when she lived in Lexington and that she and her husband had been fighting prior to the murder. So the idea there is that Maria was maybe having an affair or something. The judge doesn't allow that evidence. So according to accounts, the evidence against Abbott was considered to be thin and circumstantial, and he's represented by a former district attorney in George Stevens. In spite of all that, the jury basically goes out, they deliberate less than two hours, and they find him guilty. So Stearns Abbott is sentenced to hang on April 22nd of 1881. His attorney files an exception on the grounds of the excluded testimony, but Abbott does not end up being granted a new trial. At the time, there was a very strong public opinion against this verdict. So that's kind of a big deal for there to be public outcry against this. I don't know that it's a big enough deal to save Abbott's tush. But was there a, okay. So was the cry against uh, the finding of him being guilty or against the denial of his new trial? It's against the evidence that was used to convict him. If you, okay. if you like, if you sort of read between the lines on all of this, the idea is people did not feel like there was enough to sentence him to death. And it, the new trial idea uh, is spread where if you look at it from like a coverage perspective, it's a bit of a spectacle. It's kind of to sell copies of papers, but the idea is like, you can't hang this man without letting that testimony come in. So that's the idea in the coverage. So a lot of people get together. And at the time, Wendell Phillips gets involved. Do you know who Wendell Phillips is? No. 
Okay. So Wendell Phillips, in terms of U.S. history, is kind of a big deal. He was an abolitionist, and we learned about him when we were children. Now, he's close to death at this point, but he was seen as being a white guy who was truly colorblind in terms of the law, policies. He is credited with a lot of like modern day, like what we would call today civil rights activism. Like it's kind of starts in the era of Wendell Phillips and he Phillips was the man who uh, spoke at the funeral of John Brown, who was executed in uh, December of 1859. So by the time we get to 1880, he's much older and uh, he is, he is for women's rights. He is for uh, by this point in time, uh, he has made several huge speeches about putting the country back together after the Civil War. Um, it's a big deal. He is the one who is credited with leading uh, a petition to the governor to commute Stern's Abbott's sentence. Bottom line is he does not want Stern's Abbott put to death for this crime. There's not much else they can do. His new trial has been denied. So the very best thing that they can do is keep Abbott from dying. So the governor on June 3rd of 1881, he grants Abbott a stay or a respite. And all that is, is it means that he is ordering somebody to further look into Abbott's uh, conviction. But he does end up signing Abbott's death warrant. Governor Long comes and sits with Abbott in his cell for three hours. He tries to like reach the truth of the crime. And then talking to him makes him, three days before the scheduled hanging, commute the sentence to life in prison. That's kind of a big deal if you think about the 1881 and, and this has all gone down in like a year and I guess a year and a half from the murder to the time that he's basically granted this commutation. That would be a big deal even today, actually. In 1895, after serving 14 years of his sentence, Stern's Abbott petitions the governor with assistance for a pardon, but the governor denies this request. Then... In 1911, after 30 years in prison, the governor at the time pardons Stearns Abbott. And on April 27th, Stearns Abbott leaves Charleston State Prison a free man. He had held up his assertion that he was innocent the whole time. So that's sort of murder by gaslight's coverage of it. We're going to go back over here for a second to University of Michigan because there's some more stuff to like look at what they were saying. It doesn't contradict that, but it gives you a little more detail. And in some of it does repeat, so I apologize for that. But it's kind of a cool story. So where we pick back up with the University of Michigan is the jury has gone out. They didn't hear any exculpatory evidence of Stern's Abbott. So basically, nothing was brought forward where they could go, okay, this guy didn't do it. They returned that guilty verdict. Now, on the University of Michigan, it says that it's October 20th of 1880. 
which is a contradiction that murdered by Gaslight and some of the news articles, which are from December of 1880. Abbott was sentenced to death. And after the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts denied his appeal, that's February 21st, 1881, his hanging was set for the following April the 22nd. So we get into this situation. I don't know if you're following all these dates. They have some of the dates are lining up perfectly. April 22nd on Murder by Gaslight, April 22nd over here. But after the appeal is denied, a witness is identified. And she is marked as a young factory girl in Lowell, Massachusetts. She claims that Jenny Carr had told her that she knew that Stearns Abbott was not responsible for Maria Cruz's death. A few weeks later, that witness's body is found in the Charles River. According to the Boston Daily Globe, this is what turns the public opinion against Stearns Abbott's conviction. You following what I'm saying there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the idea is this witness comes forward and she is murdered for coming forward. Uh, she's not identified by name in any of this, but she is, for all intents and purposes, identified by the Boston Daily Globe as being important to Abbott's case. So that's when Wendell Phillips gets involved and he starts lobbying the local papers. And that's how that John Davis Long, who was the governor that we mentioned from the other article, that's how John Davis Long ends up talking to Abbott. Now, he does actually appoint, according to Boston Daily Globe, a council of six people to reinvestigate the case. In May of 1881, so this is before the reprieve in June of 1881, where the sentence commuted, Jenny Carr is called to testify before these guys. Now, she had initially denied that she had ever had a relationship with Joseph Crew and that she had ever given birth to his child, which is baffling to me. But a physician who attended the delivery of the child, he comes and testifies before the council. And he says that Jenny Carr acknowledged that she and Joseph Crew had been romantically involved. They were still involved at the time of the murder. And that the child she had given birth to was uh, Joseph Cruz. Now, that's like really important exculpatory information for Stern's habit, don't you think? I think so, yes. Governor Long doesn't want to go along with the idea of what Wendell Phillips's group that he's gotten together of these common people are saying. They want him to declare Abbott just flat out innocent. But that is when he decides, like, even if I can't declare him innocent, I can at least keep him from dying. So after Wendell Phillips dies in 1884, the movement to free Stearns Abbott stops. Ten years later, in the 1890s, a group of prominent Boston Protestant clergy, they get together and they sort of pick up where Wendell Phillips left off. On June 26, 1895, they're actually the ones who present the petition for pardon to, at the time, Governor Frederick T. Greenhall. So that was the other thing I wanted to point out from here as opposed to the gaslight. You got multiple uh, administrations going on throughout this case, which I think people would know because of the time that passes from 1880 to uh, 1911. That's 31 years this guy spent in prison. That's multiple governors. 
Now, when they present this petition on behalf of Abbott to Governor Greenhalgh, the Middlesex District Attorney opposes the pardon. So just based on that recommendation alone, the governor denies the pardon. So Governor Eugene Foss, F-O-S-S, Foss, on April 27, 1911, he's the one who finally grants the complete pardon and orders Abbott released. But by this point in time, Abbott is 71 years old. So Abbott leaves and he goes to live with relatives in Vermont. His pardon rendered the murder of Maria Crew unsolved as it would forever remain because at that point in time, it was too late to pursue Jenny Carr or Joseph Crew because they'd both died. The idea is that essentially Joseph either killed his wife or Jenny Carr killed her. Well, there's an interesting sort of, uh, it, to me it was interesting because it sort of lays out a fundamental shift in our judicial system. And it comes from, and I think it's the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. And um, it's in 1881, and it's right after, uh, it's, it's ruling on the exceptions, which are now known as objections, uh, that the defense made in the court uh, during the trial, right? We turn, you're talking about in terms of bringing the witness's testimony, right? Um, I'm talking about in terms of uh, the defense that was put on where... Uh, well, now we would call it like the Saudi defense, you know, some other, some dude other dude did it. Did it yeah. Uh, but it, it, it was with regard to the allegation, the husband did it. Oh, okay. And so here's what the court says in part. And this is at page 475 on it's 130 mass 472. It's not like Uh, It normally is, so I'm not really sure how to cite that. But it was clearly competent for the defendant to prove that he did not commit the murder by showing that some other person did. And as one step towards that end, he had a right to prove such a state of ill-filling on the part of the husband existing at the time of the homicide as would furnish him with a motive for the commission of the crime. But... The difficulty is that the ill-filling here offered to be shown was not of such a character as to afford a reasonable ground for the inference that it existed at the time of the murder. It is to be considered in connection with the important fact that during the time covered by the evidence, namely from 1873 to 1877, the parties lived together as husband and wife and continued so to live together as long as she lived. There was no evidence offered of the continuance of or existence of any ill-filling or of any occasion for ill-filling after the removal from Lexington in 1877 to the time of her death in 1880. The whole evidence fails to show deeply seated and enduring hostility on the part of the husband as to lead to the presumption that without further manifestation, and under the concealment of kindly relations, it continued to exist and so increase in power as to furnish a motive for the commission of the crime. And it goes on further to say the defendant offered nothing beyond the evidence which we have considered tending to connect the husband with the crime. It was indeed contended by counsel that some of the circumstances tended to implicate him and evidence was produced that a stranger was in town and near the place on the day of the murder. But beyond that, there was no claim that any 
particular person was indicated or suggested by any evidence as having the means and opportunity to commit the murder or as being in any manner connected with it. Now, I don't know what you get out of that, but to me, they are essentially saying that at this point, the defendant had to uh, prove himself innocent. Right. So they're recognizing that this, the burden falls on the state and that the defendant having to prove a negative in this case. I feel like they failed to recognize the burden fell like, because. Oh, I see what you're saying. I got you. You're okay. You're right. I mean, it can definitely be interpreted like that. Yes. They were basically saying that nothing had been presented to connect the husband to the crime and therefore the defendant couldn't be innocent. Gotcha. And to me, that goes against like every single principle of our justice system, right? Uh, and this this is a the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruling. Interesting. I mean, like today, the husband always did it to start with. The spouse is now the primary. Well, that's with law enforcement. I, I don't know that cases like that ever even get to like even state Supreme Courts or the United States Supreme Court anymore. But law enforcement typically suspect the husband, right? It's just a very strange. Now, this is this is almost like written in a different language to me, right? Um, as far as this opinion goes, and like what they're trying to say. But essentially, they're saying that in his defense, he failed to prove his defense. And I don't see. I don't feel like he would have to show who did it in order to have not done it. Think about how that would be applied today. Like if you were accused of murdering someone that unless you could show with evidence who did it, you were guilty. I mean, you know, the presumption of innocence is a fickle thing. It's also a fundamental right. I don't disagree with you there. The way that we go about that today is it's a it's a little strange. Um, but the idea that this guy was innocent until proven guilty is kind of trampled on by that idea, by, by that uh, holding. Do you have a lot more on this? Because I have a couple things to ask you about it. Go for it. Do you think he did it or had anything to do with it? Well, I have no idea. I um, I kind of doubt it. Uh, there's ambiguity. Now, my initial response was that I felt like more than likely it was a sort of like indirect crime of passion and that the, uh, that Jenny Carr had done it, uh, for her own reasons, but that doesn't explain any sort of sexual attack on that. That evidence is weird to me. Like I tried to find a better source for it and I couldn't find it. And the court opinions don't go into any sort of detail about any of that. No. Um, and so like, we really don't know. Um, I would say though, that I feel like, Without further information, there's no information that uh, Maria Crew had any enemies, right? There's no indication that she had any uh, specific money trouble. And, you know, so it kind of defaults to uh, we've covered uh, money and revenge. And so this, then the love aspect of a motive comes up, and that would be this young girl's love for her husband, right? Um, the Jenny Carr's love for Marie Cruz's husband. Yeah, it's really hard for me to 
discount that in any way. The fact that they had a child together makes everything point back to the two of them somehow. And it makes the most sense, especially with um, just the evidence that, uh, well, and Jenny Carr doesn't even deny the fact that she went by there and that her sled was there or her sleigh was there and got the situation. I find it really strange, though, uh, the way that the appeal was denied sort of based on like you didn't show that he did it. So you're guilty. That's it's a very strange premise there. I, I tend to agree with that. I have, I have like two interesting thoughts here. And um, so the first one is we covered what is considered to be the first like sort of modern sexual serial killer earlier in the year uh, with Earl Nelson's case. And I've always wondered if, if that's accurate because of the way records are kept and sensationalism gets into play here. And, you know, this is pure speculation, but what if Joseph uh, crew and Ginny Carr are, you know, they're guilty of infidelity and having an affair, adultery, whatever. And she's having, you know, this child, but there had been like some sort of roaming stranger that had killed her. I think the probabilities are real tiny on that happening. Like statistically, I think it's impossible. But, you know, what if? Well, considering a roaming stranger was actually convicted of her murder and sentenced to be hung and then by, like, the sheer grace of God eventually wasn't hung and then, you know, like, 31 years later he was actually acquitted, right? I feel like the chances are, like, almost zero that it was a different wandering stranger, yeah, no, I'm with you on that. I just, I, that, that lands me on Joseph and Jenny. And like, if there's like a sexual element to it, I think Joseph has to be involved or it has to be like some kind of object situation. A pregnant 16 year old didn't do that. Like some kind of object situation to make it look like someone else did it. You don't think she's that dubious? Absolutely not. Okay. I, I'm, I'm not be, disagreeing would, or agreeing. I'm saying well, I don't know. And I'm not getting on to you about it. I'm just saying, like, that would be unheard of. A pregnant 16-year-old girl, you know, defiling a even the wife of her lover, right? It just that kind of thing really doesn't happen. I, and we don't know that that element is true. In fact, we don't know a lot of this stuff is true because it's so crazy sensationalized. But the account of her being atta- sexually assaulted after death, I feel like that's something that could have been left out on purpose. I also don't feel like her husband would have done that. I I tend to uh, agree with you there. I actually tried to go find their graves. I was trying to figure out how old Maria would have been and how old Joseph would have been like when all of this happened. I had like some rough ideas, but my impression was maybe there wasn't that big a difference in age between Jenny Carr and Joseph and Maria. That's entirely possible. They don't mention any children or anything, right? Right. Uh, You know, I didn't realize this till recently and it bothers me a little bit that this is the case, but it's relevant to this particular case uh, because something you said, you know, the constitution of the United States, it doesn't actually explicitly say that the presumption of innocence is is guaranteed. 
but it's widely held that if you're following the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment, and the Fourteenth Amendments, you have to land there on the presumption of innocence. And at the time of this case, it wouldn't have applied. So the case that establishes the presumption of innocence is actually Coffin versus United States in 1895. So it would have been a few years after this. Right. And I said that it is a, it, it's a representation of the shift in our judicial system. To back up further what you were saying, like you're not only right about it, but like enough things were occurring that in 1895, the United States Supreme Court, they laid down that the presumption of innocence is guaranteed to persons accused of crimes. And it was in Coffin versus the United States. I, I don't know. Well, I guess I do know that like, obviously it wasn't readily apparent back then, but like, you know, because we have understanding of like now, right. Yeah. Uh, Without, I mean, I I have some knowledge of history, but like uh, the way that everything is shaped and formed, you know, it's not at the front of my mind because it's it's not irrelevant, but it doesn't apply, right? Right. And to to be in a situation where, like I like you were saying, it was literally uh, a presumption of guilt, and so if you take that. And you think uh, this case was in 1880, right? Yeah, this one is in 1880. Okay, so if you take that and you think to yourself, okay, in 1880, we've got the uh, Massachusetts Supreme Court like clearly uh, denying the, they would be objections now, but at that point in time, they're called exceptions. They're denying the defense, uh, trying to get exceptions made during the trial overturned so that they could produce evidence to establish it wouldn't establish it wouldn't establish the guilt but it was exculpatory on the part of the defendant it would be leading towards someone else's guilt right right and they state over and over in here all these articles do agree on that that the failure to present exculpatory evidence is why the jury voted to convict Stern's Abbott. Right. And, and they take it all the way to uh, the state Supreme Court saying, hey, we wanted to present this and it wasn't allowed. Right. Um, this, the Massachusetts Supreme Court affirmed the denial of the exception. So it, it affirmed the trial court not allowing the evidence the defendant attempted to put in. Uh, it, it affirmed the decision of the trial court not to let it in. And it's mind blowing. Because yeah. this guy never never stood a chance. Right? Well, he did. But if yeah. you think about in the bigger picture, how many people did this happen to? Oh, I mean, that's one of the reasons I went and looked up the holding because I was curious how this timed with that. And if you actually go and read the case is available because it's a Supreme Court case. It's like I I don't know what the numbers on it are, but I, I remember it saying U.S. four thirty two, and it's from eighteen ninety five. It's like five defendants and plaintiffs in error, which I'd never heard of that term before uh, I read Coffin, which is the holding that like comes later. It's the craziest, like it's the stupidest case. It's an Indianapolis bank fraud case that actually gets this holding. And it's got like the sprawling 50 count indictment. It's got multiple like really goofy uh, charges where these people were all helping the president of the bank commit misdemeanor bank fraud. It's the wildest thing to read but the holding was 
It is the duty of the judge in all jurisdictions when requested and some when not requested to explain the presumption of innocence to the jury in his charge. The usual formula in which doctrine is expressed is that every man is presumed to be innocent until his guilt is proved beyond a reasonable doubt. And so the chief justice at the time was Melvin Fuller. And that's, that is a very interesting holding it's never going to be overturned, I don't think, because it like had so much constitutional. Um, Once it was out there, because to you know, I would say the majority of people, it's common sense. Now, you know, history says otherwise, apparently, but it being overturned, like. It's really hard once common sense has been firmly stated by the Supreme Court, right, um, to overturn that. But it, I feel like today in our like modern day 2023 society, while it's not rampant, I feel like today there is still an aura in any criminal case that a defendant is guilty. I think that you're right. And I think that it doesn't, it's weird because it doesn't come from law enforcement, generally speaking, and it doesn't come from, you know, the, the sort of uh, prosecutors. It comes from the media. Right. And, and I feel like scar, the mark is there from the onset of any sort of allegation, right? Oh, absolutely. It leaves an, it, it leaves an indelible impression on the person's character the moment And that, that doesn't happens. that doesn't fade with a even an acquittal, right? Yeah. Um it's there and it stays and it scars. This is one of those situations where we don't get to see like a whole lot of cases uh, that kind of illustrated as well as, as I feel like this one does uh, because of, you know, the scant sort of paperwork, uh, not paperwork, opinions available and how different they are now uh, versus now. It's even hard to read them, right, and comprehend yeah. what it sort of translates to now. But to me, like, this is a really good example of that. And I do think that even as much has been established, it is still – uh, it's still a thing even now where um, a jury acts, you know, we've talked about on the show a lot how like when a defense doesn't put on a defense, that yes. a lot of times yes. the jury gets the wrong idea. Yes. Um, and, you know, I understand it from a, a from each point of view, but I still think that the underlying part of that is like, oh, well, they the prosecution said it, so it must be true, right? And so I feel like the non-defense defense is, it fails a lot, not because the prosecution didn't, uh, not because the prosecution proved their case, but because there was no defense. Yeah. It's very interesting. It all ties together. It does. It's five days from Hanukkah. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.
All right. So I'm going to tell you guys a, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CRIMEXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated it helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. And right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Excess will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural, whole food ingredients. And they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors. There's no colors or additives. And there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. 
They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be TrueCrimeXS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labarty Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but It's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. 
We're part of Zencaster's Creative Network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash True Crime Access. You can also use the code True Crime Access at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code True Crime Access.